This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. Since 2018, we've welcomed leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists to our podcast. These individuals have shaped our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters, in addition to sharing stories with us about their scholarly and personal journeys. Many of our guests are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country to our Phi Beta Kappa chapters, where they spend two days on campus and present free public lectures. We invite you to attend. For more information about visiting scholar lectures, please visit pbk.org. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome two eminent philosophers, Dr. Ned Block and Dr. Ian Phillips, to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. Ned Block is the Silver Professor of Philosophy, Psychology, and Neuroscience at New York University, and Ian Phillips is the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Psychology and Brain Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. These two scholars are the 2021 recipients of the Leibowitz Prize for Philosophical Achievement and Contribution, awarded by the Phi Beta Kappa Society in conjunction with the American Philosophical Association, the APA for recognition of their outstanding achievement in the field of philosophy. Each year, the Leibowitz Award is presented to a pair of highly regarded philosophers who hold contrasting views on an important philosophical question. Our 2021 winner's topic is Perception, Consciousness, and the Self, which they presented at the 2022 APA Central Division meeting in Chicago in late February. We're thrilled to be with them here today to talk about their respective viewpoints on their topic. Welcome, professors. Thanks, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. It's great each year to have the Leibowitz Prize winners with me. It's a chance for us to explore some important issue in philosophy. And before that, I'd, I'd love to just do a little bit of a walk through your respective journeys. Uh, Ned, first, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and was there a moment when you thought to yourself, if I can swing it, I want to make a living being a philosopher. I, I'm originally from Chicago. I was a first-generation college student. My uh, grandparents were immigrants. Uh, my father was the first member of his family to be born in the U.S. He grew up speaking Yiddish. He lived um, a, a, above a Yiddish cafe. <laughs> so um, I had really pretty much never heard of philosophy. I went to MIT to be an electrical engineer. In my, uh, in my first semester, actually my first day, I took a course from Hubert Dreyfus, who is a famous um, existentialist, phenomenologist philosopher. And that got me really interested. In my second year, Hilary Putnam came to MIT. Really the celebrated philosopher from, from Harvard, Hilary Putnam. Yes. So I took a course from, um, from Putnam each semester. And then when I was a graduate student, he was my thesis advisor at Harvard. 
But a, a defining moment for me actually was a course I took as a senior in college uh, from Philippa Foote, who was um, an Oxford philosopher who was visiting at MIT. And she taught us a course on John Locke and Ludwig Wittgenstein. And she was a strong Wittgenstein proponent. And I realized in that course that I was a Lockean. <laughs> and it was, it was because she was coming at it from the other side that you discovered the, uh, your, your Lockean self? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ian, what, what about you? Um, I, I presume uh, you didn't grow up in Chicago from your accent. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your background. And again, was there a, was there a moment when you said, I think, I think this is my path? Yeah, no, you're quite right, Fred. I didn't grow up in Chicago. I grew up in London, England, as you probably could tell. Uh, as a kid, I was really interested in kind of everything. And my parents were wonderfully supportive of, of kind of every intellectual endeavor that I engaged in. But in the UK, you really have to choose basically one subject to study at university. And I found that incredibly difficult. And I came across this course called Physics and Philosophy. And I thought, brilliant, I can study science. Uh, I really liked maths and physics, and I could study humanities. I didn't really know what philosophy was at that time. It just seemed an opportunity to carry on with studying literature and, and things like that. And so it wasn't until university and I actually started reading uh, philosophy in particular. In my first year, I remember studying logic and, and, and Descartes' meditations that I thought, this is amazing. This is just the place that the questions I'm interested in are being asked, and I love the way the kind of freedom of thought and the combination of rigor and creativity. I mean, I suppose, especially in this context, I want to single out one influence on me at that early age, which was Ned, because I certainly by my sophomore year, I was reading papers in philosophy of mind, his kind of classic papers, and they really excited me about issues to do with consciousness and also about how you might you know, engage philosophy with science. So at the time I was studying physics, but it seemed to me it would really be great if I could study these issues and philosophy of mind in a way that connected with uh, the mind-brain sciences. And that, that's something that I've really found a model in in Ned's work and have tried to you know, carry on in my own work. So Ian, you transitioned from the interest in, in physics being the philosophy and side to brain science, uh, uh, neurobiology, I assume. How did that transition take place and how do you, how do you see the you know, each side of that elucidating the, the, the other side in your work? I mean, I think it's extremely difficult. I mean, there is this clear common interest in trying to understand what the nature of the mind is and, you know, very, very different perspectives from, you know, as you say, neurobiology uh, through cognitive neuroscience and psychology and philosophy and actually many other things too, um, you know, artificial intelligence, linguistics and so on. And so integrating those different perspectives and disciplines into some kind of unified understanding of, of the mind and consciousness, I think is a huge challenge. It's very much still with us. And, and philosophy is like, in ways uniquely placed to do that. Ned, I want to ask you the same question about interdisciplinarity, but before we turn to hard science, you have a particular interest in science fiction, don't you? And have, uh, have looked to science fiction as a source for some of your, your examples. You want to just tell us a little bit about where, where that all comes from? Oh, when I was a kid, I read all the science fiction books in the Chicago Public Library, downtown branch, and I was a real science fiction addict. I'm, I'm still something of a science fiction addict. I just, just watched the new movie yes. Dune. 
which which I love. <laughs> um, so, in in terms of um, your your other uh, interdisciplinary interests and how it uh, enforces and reinforces your your work on the philosophy side, how how would you describe that? I I got very interested in in psychology um, in graduate school. Uh, I took a lot of psychology courses. Um, I didn't really get interested in neuroscience until maybe 20 years ago. Um, really, when there was an explosion in interest, philosophically interesting results in in neuroscience, and God, they were just crying out for somebody to try to figure out what they meant, and that that got me really hooked. I should say that the kind of thing that Ian and I do, um, uh, despite our differences in views, we're both really uh, taken with the importance of um, the sciences of the mind for doing philosophy of mind. And that has become extremely popular in the field. Um, and for good reason, there's just uh, terrific collaborations. That Actually, the department that Ian is in is perhaps the strongest place uh, that there is for that, that kind of work. Let's take us uh, into the 2021 Leibowitz Prize and what what brought you here and and uh, get into that part of the discussion a little bit. First, let me let me say a word or two about the the prize itself, if I might. Uh, we at Phi Beta Kappa are enormously grateful to Eve Lewis Leibowitz for her generous request honoring her late husband, Dr. Martin Leibowitz, in establishing the prize. I, I will say, for me, the beauty of the Leibowitz Prize is that it's designed to be presented to a pair of philosophers who disagree about something or take contrasting views on an important philosophical question that's of current interest. So in a sense, every year, there are two things that are going on with the Leibowitz Prize. One, obviously, is the discussion and learning about an important philosophical topic. Part of the whole goal of the prize is to have this be an opportunity to promote the discipline of philosophy to wider audiences, hence this podcast, for example. But in addition to that, there's kind of a meta topic here, isn't there, about how to disagree without delegitimizing in an interesting way. I think disagreement is community building in a way people don't always expect. So in that sense, I think that the Leibowitz Prize is the highest aspiration of the community-building enterprise of disagreeing. Uh, so I'm going to let you uh, both disagree a little bit on the topic of perception, consciousness, and the self. Let me see if I can set the table a bit. I do this with some trepidation with two uh, world-renowned experts here. So if I have this right, uh, Ned embraces distinctions between conscious and unconscious perceptions, supporting, in fact, a trichotomy uh, comprising unconscious, merely uh, phenomenally conscious, and access conscious perception. And so you have described that as the fragmented mind or understanding the mind in a fragmented sense, whereas Ian uh, rejects these distinctions, rejects fragmentation, and defends a monistic or we could say unified vision of the mind. So if if I have that roughly right at a kind of surface level, Ned, why don't you take us through the the background of your position, and then Ian, I'm going to let you uh, re react to that and articulate your own position, and let's talk a little bit about perception and the mind. Yeah, so I I, I think you did get that right. So I see a distinction between what I've called phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness. So phenomenal consciousness is the what it's like of perception, what it feels like to have a perception. So that is distinguished from 
the availability to our thought and reasoning processes of perceptual information. So that's the access set. So I think sometimes when people talk about unconscious perception, they're talking about access unconscious perception. For example, Freud speaks of repressed memories. Those memories, there may be something it's like to have them, but you lose access to them because they're so damaging and problematic. Um, and at the same time, I also think that there are ordinary cases that are pretty plausibly cases of phenomenal consciousness without access consciousness. One intuitive example, well, two intuitive examples. One is, uh, one experience that people often have is an experience of when some background sound goes off. You have the experience not just that you stopped hearing something, but that you were hearing it for some long period of time, which suggests that perhaps at some earlier time, um, you uh, were having the experience of hearing it without accessing the, the fact that that noise was going on, without noticing it or bringing it to your attention. Both Ian and I agree that that's not enough, that you need some actual experimental data to support it. And Ian has made very um, uh, strong criticisms, many of which I agree with about some of the experiments that have been done to support it, but I think there are other experiments that evade uh, those criticisms. So I take the basic um, rationale for that distinction to be an experimental distinction. So then the, the second point is about unconscious perception. We certainly live in an environment where people think there's a lot of unconscious perception, subliminal perception, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about it. And in Ian's in my original debates, I strongly supported the idea of purely unconscious perception. I was convinced by some of Ian's criticisms that maybe the idea of completely unconscious perception, while I still think there is such a thing, I think it isn't as well supported as I once thought. Um, what I now advocate more strongly is that perception always involves conscious and unconscious elements. So, and I think the, the support for this is, is, um, is experimental. So one interesting experiment by uh, Mel Goodale at the University of Western Ontario in Canada showed that there is more precision in normal people's grip aperture um, in the periphery of the visual field than is in their judgments. Judgments scale up from, if you look straight ahead um, and then you are uh, picking something up on the side, your precision of your grip is pretty constant across the visual field, including at 70 degrees off of where the direction you're actually looking in, which as far as conscious vision goes, you can barely see it really. But your, your judgments um, are much more imprecise um, about the peripheral size of things. So you, the precision comes partly from a partly unconscious system. That's the basic idea. So the claim is not for purely unconscious perception, but that there is uh, conscious perception and then there is this mix of uh, far more unconscious aspect to, to perception. That's right. That, that's exactly right. So a lot of the earlier work suggested that you could shave off the conscious part of a, of a perception and be left with unconscious perception. And I think Ian's done a pretty good job of um, 
suggesting that that case isn't as strong as one might have thought. Perhaps a homely example of that uh, 70 degree uh, angle picking up something not completely consciously is the experience most of us have had of putting a phone down someplace not directly in front of us and still seeing uh, a push of some kind uh, or a text come in and you're not even fully aware that it came in, but it, but it did. And another anecdotal case is uh, people report is running on the beach and your feet avoid the stones that you're only barely aware of seeing at all. Ian, how's he got it right? And where is he fundamentally wrong? Maybe I could say just a brief thing about the kind of meta question you began with. So about fruitful disagreement. And I mean, I suppose there are two things there. One is uh, most disagreements, if they're fruitful, fruitful, take place against the background of a certain amount of agreement. So I think there's kind of a lot of agreement about, about various things. I mean, one is I think we both think that phenomenal consciousness is the target phenomenon that really exists and that it, it's importantly connected with what's going on in the brain. But I guess another thing, just a sociological thing, is that you know I remember the first time I you know, presented material criticizing Ned's views, and his response to that was great. I really you know, relish the engagement, and uh, you know that's let's make the most out of it. Which is huge for me when a you know senior figure in your field who you're really potentially going to be intimidated by, and no doubt could um, pick holes in lots of your arguments, you know, really decides to. Uh, engage with you in that way. So yeah. So where where do we where do we disagree? Um, so there's this notion that there's a distinction between phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness that Ned was talking about, and that the, the notion of phenomenal consciousness you might kind of introduce in terms of there being something it's like for you from your perspective. So this goes back to a famous discussion by Tom Nagel of what is it like to be a bat. And part of the way that that gets motivated in, in, in the case of the bat is to point out that bats can discriminate all sorts of things in their environment. They can detect their prey. They can detect you know, how it's moving and so on. And it gives you this sense that the bat has a, an environment that it has a subjective perspective on. And I think that's exactly right. But what I kind of resist is the idea that there could be elements of that subjective perspective which aren't even available to as it were, the bat's cognitive system. So that means, you know, the bat's action uh, planning and guidance systems, uh, its thinking insofar as bats go in for a lot of thinking. And, and I think a tricky notion here is this, this notion of available or accessible. So I think really want to distinguish between something being available to you or accessible to you and actually being um, you know, exploited by you in some way or other. So some of the examples that Ned, Ned mentioned are cases, I think, where there is information that's uh, forming part of your subjective perspective, it's in phenomenal consciousness, and it's available to you. It's just you haven't taken, you know, made use of it yet. Um, and so I think there can be elements of our consciousness, which, are, as it were, we're not paying attention to, but are there for us. But the idea that there could be something that's part of our conscious experience, but that we don't have any access to at all that really is completely beyond our ken seems to me um, mistaken. And that in ways I think connects with, with some of the things I want to say about unconscious perception too. So I think that perceptual states should really be regarded as, as states of, of, of people, of individuals, like you know, human beings in our own case, or bats in the case of bats, 
they're not states of our brains or they're not states of some you know subpart or at some lower level of explanation and to take if you take that idea seriously that a perceptual state is really a state of yours then there's a question about what conditions have to be in play for that to be be the case when is some information about the size of something or location of something figuring in in your uh, mind even if allegedly unconsciously and I think the answer to that is like when it's available to uh, you know guide your actions and to um, you know figure in your cognitive life more generally. And taking that seriously, I don't think there are good examples of even aspects of states which um, are genuinely perceptions of us which uh, are unconscious. Those aspects of states of our brains and maybe they have effects on the way that we navigate in the world in certain situations, but they're not available for our use in guiding our actions. Otherwise that would just be a marker of their actually being conscious. And I think that's consistent with there being lots of stuff that's in the fringe of our conscious awareness that we, you know, maybe don't pay attention to maybe like the locations of the stones on the beach and they're there, as James would say, maybe in the fringe of our consciousness, we don't pay much attention to them but they're nonetheless there. They're nonetheless available for guiding the movements of our feet. So I'm going to let Ned uh, weigh in, but I, but I can't resist just asking a, a follow-up on that, that jogging on the beach uh, example. Is there a meaningful distinction between what I do when I run on the beach and I, I'll use the word consciously see something in front of me and I avoid that, I, you know, excuse me, as I do, dodge, dodge past somebody, uh, and the experience of... Um, my my feet are looking out for me, right? My my head is not the one guiding this, um, and I don't know how I missed that stone. I I genuinely don't, but apparently I did. Should those experiences be meaningfully distinguished? Good. So I do think there are cases where um, information comes in, and something less than us, a bit of our brain, or maybe as you said, our feet, just there's some reflex response, and that I think is perfectly fine to think of that as unconscious. Um, that process. And, and maybe that's one way of thinking about what's going on in this case. It's a really an empirical question, exactly how we think about the, the anecdotal example. Um, so one possibility is that information is coming in through the eyes and you know, triggering various kind of avoidance reflexes that mean that we, we move in a slightly different way. But another possibility is that we are in fact consciously picking up that information and using it to guide our, our movements. And so making good on that distinction between you know, flexibly guided movement and an automatic reflex responses is really crucial. Uh, and so I don't mean to pronounce on an anecdotal case. I think getting that distinction right, it does map onto the conscious unconscious in a helpful way. Yeah, so on the, the, the feet of avoiding the stones thing, I think it's helpful to go back to the example that I gave to begin with of the of the precision of your grip in picking up a block on the in the in uh, in the peripheral periphery of your vision, there's more precision there than is in your conscious vision. So some of that uh, precision is supplied by a partially unconscious system. So that's that's the key from my point of view. That's not a reflex. It's not you know, your feet doing it, it's not your hand doing it, it is your vision 
doing it, but you have unco partially unconscious vision that is supplying some of that extra precision. So that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking so about. So let me just press you on that a little bit. Uh, tell me, really, from a, from a visual science point of view, what does unconscious vision mean? Okay, so this is this weird fact. We have two visual systems. You know, philosophers make up examples, and I think this um, so, could easily sound like a made-up example. We have actually two visual systems. They both start in the back of the head. Uh, the, uh, um, the, you know, wires from the eye go to the back of the head. The earliest cortical visual area, V1, is in the back of the head. And then they feed into one um, system that goes down under your ear, or, uh, by your ears, called the ventral stream. Um, and then there's another one that goes to the top of your head called the dorsal stream. And it's that dorsal stream that's partially unconscious. Um, people used to claim it was entirely unconscious, but I don't know that that's really very well supported. And that feeds very heavily into the periphery of your visual field. That's why people think it's responsible for your feet avoiding the stones. And, or if you're, it's also much faster than the ventral visual system. Um, so if you're dribbling a b basketball down the court, um, your most of your you know your 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 fades back and forth trying to outwit the other person are going to be um, uh, controlled by that dorsal system, which is partially unconscious. Um, and um, uh, so that's why I think that there's so much of of the visually guided action that's ours but is partially unconsciously guided. One of the things that made your topic such a great fit for the Leibowitz Prize, I think, is that although obviously it gets uh, pretty uh, rigorous from a philosophical point of view pretty quickly, that the topic itself actually has quite a bit of appeal, even for non-specialists uh, trying to understand how we think, how do we experience the world. What I wanted to ask uh, both of you to, to do, if you would, before we, we end our time together in key conversations, is to make a couple of book recommendations. But ordinarily, I, I ask for a recommendation of something that the guests are reading right now or of particular interest. But I'd be grateful if, if each of you could suggest a couple of books, uh, one for somebody with some expertise in the field, but maybe it's something that hasn't quite received the attention that it might. And then the other is for those who are not uh, specialists or any expertise in philosophy, but obviously have enough interesting to join us today uh, and would like to do a little more reading to expand on their knowledge on some of the themes we've been talking about. So the, the book I'd recommend to a non-specialist who is just interested broadly is a book called Other Minds by Peter Godfrey Smith. Its subtitle is The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. And he's a very serious diver and has spent a lot of time studying uh, underwater life, but in particular the octopus, which has a very, very different you know, brain system like uh, uh, distributed throughout its, its body in a way that's very different to ours. And it just raises so many fascinating questions because our... You know, our earliest common ancestor, uh, or most recent common ancestor, is you know such a simple, like a worm or something, um, that it's an, like an alien that exists on our planet. So octopuses are really smart; they seem plausible candidates for being conscious. But uh, his discussion of you know in what ways they might be conscious and how their consciousness might differ from from humans is is really cool. A book I loved as a student, I still love it. It's really provocative and 
um, very accessible. Um, I don't think it's right about everything, of course, but I think it's really interesting is Dennett's, Adam Dennett's Consciousness Explained. Um, and I think that's really accessible, but also something that deserves study still, uh, even by people in the field. A book I've read recently, which I really loved and is a bit more technical, but actually is so interesting that I think I'd recommend it more broadly, is a book by a philosopher called uh, Elizabeth Schechter. It's called Self-Consciousness and Split Brains. And it's about this fascinating group of subjects who, because of problems with severe epilepsy, had the bundles of fibers that connect their two cerebral hemispheres severed. And it seems, and she makes a very powerful case for this, that such individuals really become two. They have two minds, two separate streams of consciousness. Uh, and I think kind of thinking through the implications of that kind of empirical case, um, whether or not you agree with that conclusion, but what you say about those cases is, is really uh, an interesting thing to think about. So I would also recommend the Schechter book and the Godfrey Smith book. I'm not a fan of Dennett, so I, I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, one additional book I would recommend, both for specialists and for just the ordinary public, um, is a book by Stanislas Dehaan on consciousness. I forget the name of the book, but it's like maybe three or four years old. And although I am totally opposed to his point of view on consciousness, I think it's just a fantastic book uh, going through the evidence in a you know pretty neutral objective way it's an exciting read it's uh anybody who's interested in consciousness should really read that book and it's easily available to anybody with no to be somebody with no background i think it's called the conscious brain if i'm not wrong but that could that that sounds right Ned Block, Ian Phillips, congratulations again on winning the Leibowitz Prize. You add great luster to a great prize, one that we take uh, enormous uh, pride in at Phi Beta Kappa. And thank you both for joining me on Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa today. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much, Fred. This podcast is produced by LWC. Cedric Wilson is lead producer. Paulina Velasco is managing producer. This episode was mixed by Kojin Tashiro. Jimmy Gutierrez contributed to this episode. Hadley Kelly is the Phi Beta Kappa producer on the show. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our visiting scholar program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time. <laughs>